Sonic State Watchcom. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk. This week we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I'm actually not here because I'm on holiday this week. Um, but uh, I recorded an interview with uh, John Bowen, who's uh, a synth designer of some note. Uh, he started out working for um, sequential circuits back in the 70s, uh, eventually going with them to Korg through Korg and Yamaha. Uh, then he worked with uh, Creamware for some time uh, and finally started his own company, Zarg Music, uh, producing plugins for the Scope platform which, by all accounts, are some of the finest plugins that you can get. Uh, he's very much concerned with ease of use and uh, the sonic quality. At Mesa this year, he announced a brand new hardware version of the Solaris Synth. Uh, this is the name of his plugin that uh, has been he's been selling for about four years. Much to excitement around the synth community, so uh, we thought we'd uh, try and hook up with him and have a chat with with him about Solaris and the early days and anything else that we could throw in. So. I hope you enjoy this. The synth world's been kind of set on fire, really, with, with the, the, the news of a new hardware synth, especially from someone with such a sort of track record as you. And um, so you've just you've just sort of finished the whole Mesa thing. How how has it been? Uh, it's been great. I mean, this is really a fulfillment of a dream from since I started, you know, working with Dave Smith back in the old Prophet Five days. It's taken me, uh, taken me a little while to get here, but through many different uh, companies and products, I finally achieved what I really wanted, which was a, a design, a hardware design of my own doing. Okay, so that's all. That's been sort of in your on your kind of event horizons ever since those early days back at uh, in the seventies with uh, the sequential right. circuit. Right. I started out as a Moog clinician, and I was. You know, I'm in my 20s. And I'm just happy to have free gear. I, I didn't really care about the job as much as <laughs> access to, to free equipment, you know. And uh, it was kind of the same thing when I when I uh, teamed up with Dave Smith because I was playing in a band and still doing Moog clinics and needed some extra help. And uh, just after his sequencer, the Model 800 sequencer, to, to assist me in my Moog clinics. And then he, he played a bass. He was a bass player. I was a bass player. And he kind of understood the music side of me, and again, I kept asking for stuff like, can you build this so I can have it on stage, you know, and I think a lot of younger guys will understand, they just, they're gear, we're all gearheads, you know. <laughs> so I, I was kind of a little um, um, curious about how you kind of started off in there. Was your primary kind of role within that actual sound design, I mean, or was it um, from the electronics point of view? Yeah, I was... Um just intrigued with sound, I would say. Yeah. Even as a kid, I was, you know, I, I, I was the kind of kid that would play the low note on the piano, the lowest note on the piano, and stick my head underneath and let the resonance of the of the piano chamber just go on and on. And as the note died out, just fascinated with the, you know, the, the timbre, the change of the harmonics as they died off. I mean, I remember doing that, and it was a little strange maybe, but well, uh, yeah. I, I was just in love with the sound. And then um, early on, I started recording with the little tape recorder and turning the tape upside down and listening to it backwards and and forcing the band I was in to put up with me doing some kind of sound collage in the middle of these pop tunes. So <laughs> I was always messing around with sound. And then when I got to college, uh, I went to the University of California at Berkeley, and they, they had a Moog modular there for the graduate students, but we weren't allowed to get near it. We were kept at one side of the room while they showed it to us on the other side of the room. And uh, I was totally 
fascinated just looking at you know how it is you look at these modules they like they look like spaceships so sure. um the first chance i had to get close to one was an arp 2600 at a music store and i went in and um they had it in a glass enclosed room and i asked the guy if i could play it and play with it and uh, he said sure kind of laughingly and i went in and found out why in a few five minutes i, I couldn't get a darn thing out of it <laughs> could make any sound so that, was, but that was the first time I could get close to a synthesizer and actually work with it. And that was uh, that was in like 1972. Sure. And uh, I went out. And I said, "Do you have the owner's manual? Can you sell it to me?" So they sold it to me for five bucks. And I was working six night a, six night a week gig there. And every uh, couple of days, I after the gig, I'd you know come home at two a.m. and and read the manual and write down notes, and then I'd go back to the music store and test out things. And the first day, I went back. I got it to sound, and I was jubilant. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. And ever since then, I guess I still loved working with these things. And I finally got—I finally was able to buy an ARP twenty-six hundred. So many, many years. Yeah, well, our top twenty synths um, um, series that we've been doing. There's been lots of people who sort of talk about these synthesizers and remember seeing them. And then the, finally, after they've kind of given you all this information about, you know, the Mini Moog or the ARP 2600, you said, so when did you get one? And they sort of say, last year <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> they, they've only ever been able to do it. So, so and, and you drifted into sort of sequential circuits. Uh, and I was just trying to figure out, fathom your role with that, because, I mean, I'd heard that you'd done the original set of presets for the Prophet 5. Is that, is right. that correct? That's right. So there I was doing clinics for a couple of years and also trying to get in the rock star status with the band I was in. And we were working towards a record deal, but um, I I saw one day, I lived in Oakland, California, I saw one day Dave's uh, sequential circuits ad in Keyboard Magazine, and it showed a little Model 800 sequencer, and below that there was another ad for uh, EMU systems, both in San Jose, both of them about 45 minutes drive from me, so I decided to go down there and give each one of them a call, called EMU first, and I said, uh, this is Tom Bowen from Mode Music, you know, trying to sound very important. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to buy and see your factory. And the guys laughed and said, well, it's a two-bedroom apartment, but you're welcome to come by. And I did. Took a look at a huge EMU modular system, which was just gorgeous. Um, but they didn't really have anything that I could take you know, with me. And then on the way, on the way out, I said, well, I'm going to go visit this Dave Smith guy at Sequential Circuits. Or just Sequential Circuits. I don't think I knew his name. And they kind of poo-pooed him. Oh, we provide that guy's clock oscillator for his sequencer. And he's, you know, he doesn't work there full-time. And, I called Sequential Circuit's number. His, uh, Dave's wife answered and said, uh, there's no factory. You know, I did the same thing. Hi, I'm John Bowen, Moog Music. I'd like to drop by and see the factory. Same thing. She says, oh, it's not a factory. It's a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to wait for Dave to get off work from, uh, he was working for Xerox Systems. And then uh, um, I got in there and got to see his little sequencer. I think he'd sold one to San Francisco State, another one to Len Sasso. So, he had just gotten started, and uh, I made him a, this offer to uh, I take his sequencer around. If he gave me one, there I am wanting the free gear again. You don't know me, but <laughs> gave me one to run around. I'd put it up at my clinics. I'd use it to give me a third a third arm, basically to to provide more material. You know, sure. Uh, I mean, guys with sequences with hundreds of tracks now are extremely spoiled, in my opinion. In in any case, uh, so that's how we started out, and uh, I. Uh, worked in this other band called the Nielsen Pearson Band for a, quite a while, getting our record deal. And 
since I had a couple of mini mugs, uh, there were times on stage when I'd stop playing bass and would play keyboards, and the other guitarist could also play keyboards. And sure. He yeah. played on the mini mug, and I played on the mini mug, but he didn't know how to program it. So at one point, Oberheim brought out a, a partial programmer for the Oberheim synths, and I looked at Dave. I said, Dave, you could build one of these for me for uh, my friend in the band who needs a mini mug uh, controlled. So uh, he said, well, you draw out the front panel you know, what you'd need on the programmer, and I'll, I'll build it. So that was the Model 700 programmer, and that really started our collaboration, if you will. Um, I was no longer doing Moog stuff, and I went with Dave with his first official NAMM show in Atlanta. And we had the Model 700 programmer, we had a Minimoog, we had a big EMU system there, and we had the Model 800 sequencer. And almost everyone who came up to Dave looked at all of that gear and said, why don't you put all of this stuff into one piece and, and sell it? You'd, you'd do great. And he never wanted to do that, he said. He says, no, I'm only interested in peripheral things, not actual complete instruments. Uh, I was convinced that he was never going to go down that path. Uh, a month later, this is like June, July in 77, um, he called me and said, hey, guess what? Remember that project we, we, we thought would be great, but I'll never do? Well, it looks like we can do it. And as it turned out, Dave Rossum from EMU had worked with the Solid State Music to develop these these components, and he, for whatever reason, EMU was not going to use them for a commercial synthesizer, and they were willing to let Dave um, take it and run with it. So, well, that's a stroke of luck. Um, Dave asked me if I, again, just draw out what you'd like to have on the front panel, and I'll, I'll draw it out, you draw it out, and come down, and I brought my sketch down. And of course, my sketch had, like a mini mode, three oscillators, and I had a couple of extra envelopes in there and a couple of extra LFOs because I wanted to do some some uh, sophisticated modulation with it. Chill. Um, and uh, Dave was more of the practical person, and we looked at each other's sketches, and he had two oscillators and two envelopes and one LFO, and and uh, I was trying to argue why to have these other, <laughs> why to have the extra stuff, and he said, "Well, cost-wise, it's not it's not practical." But I did convince him to uh, put this polymod section in, which which my idea was, okay, well, if I can't get my third oscillator to run at audio rates, then why don't we just borrow oscillator number two and and route it in a couple of ways. And likewise for the extra envelope, we'll just borrow a filter envelope instead of a third one and use that to do stuff. And uh, then we were off and running, and he, uh, he pieced the thing together on a breadboard and... Uh, he had it done in about six months to make some sound. And then uh, January 70, 1978, we showed it at the NAMM show, and there's a whole story behind that. But um, I ended up, because of the work I did with Dave, Dave, at the end of the NAMM show, was we had a, a huge success because it was, un, unlike any other synth, every parameter was sellable, you know, was uh, savable, sorry. Yeah. Um, and, of course, kids nowadays, or people nowadays, you know, presets are thousands and thousands of presets. But thinking back to when there were no presets at all. That was a major breakthrough, uh, wasn't it? I mean, That was the of... major breakthrough. And I think we, we couldn't, we didn't have any money to actually build the synths. We had to take orders at the show and then go to the bank with the orders and say, look, we've got orders. Now we need to buy the parts. And <laughs> that's how it went in the beginning. Uh, but I didn't actually become part of the company full-time until 1982 when uh, we had a number of albums had come out, but nothing had really gone anywhere with the Nielsen Pearson band. So I, 
uh, Dave called me one time. I was down in, in Los Angeles. He said, are you ready to give up the rock star business and come <laughs> take a real take a real job? And so I, in 82, I, I left Hollywood and uh, moved back to San Jose and took on a full-time job, job as product manager. And I developed almost all the presets and drum patterns and sequences and everything throughout the uh, remaining years of Sequential. And did, and did also a lot of the... Um, uh, user interface design for the instruments with with a. Did you did you find that sound design became a kind of major part of what you did? But as I presumably as presets became more prevalent on all sorts of instruments, because you moved. Did you move over to Korg with with um, with the whole sequential kind of move as well? Of course, yeah. Sound design. It really was. Uh, I was also doing some movie sound design and soundtrack stuff, and yeah, I really really fell in love with that and. Uh, so how how did you find the transition uh, from sort of analog based technology through to the digital side? Did did that affect the way you had to think about things so much, or did it just make things easier or more difficult? Or no, the, when it's an all analog components, yeah, the digital stuff is just great and handy to have. What I started down, what started downhill <laughs> downhill to me was switching over to software envelopes because the very first ones weren't very good in. I, even with the Prophet 600, where we had some software envelopes, I believe, I, I wasn't really that jazzed with them. And in the T8, we also had some software envelopes that were a little weird. But, of course, the T8 had a wonderful keyboard, and the control issues were fantastic. Yeah. But I wasn't really too jazzed with the sound of it either. The, that was another generation of Curtis chips. I don't know, nothing had ever really done what the Prophet Rev 1 has, has done for my ears. But um, but as far as the digital uh, things go, I would say you know, it was unavoidable. I mean, you know, when the DX7 came out, where everything is run digitally, basically, Yeah. Uh, Dave and I were both pretty skeptical that it would be a hit. <laughs> Everybody says that, yeah. <laughs> Hey, this will be no good. You can't. We 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 thought it sounded noisy and it sounded bad and it was extremely hard to run. You know, one slider and and who was going to buy this thing? But of course, it was half the price of uh, what we had and sixteen voices, I believe, and two thousand dollars and the rest is history. And a whole bunch of presets. And a whole bunch of presets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, lots of people uh, made their careers on just designing presets for DX, the DX series. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened is then we, we, we realized, well, okay, you know, maybe maybe we were, wrong, <laughs> we were wrong there. The problem is you get more and more parameters in a synth and, and more functions, then you really have to get kind of complicated. And I think that's an earmark of a lot of the digital designs nowadays is that they have pages and, you know, pages and pages of parameters where you have to move around. Certainly with all the software synths, you see this. I mean, and that's the one thing that makes it kind of interesting or, or more difficult because you're, you're hit with this because as technology allows us to kind of tweak the sounds in more and more ways, it makes the interface more complex. But so it's sort of almost easier to tweak the, those sort of level of interfaces uh, with a mouse and a keyboard because you can, you know, you can, you can, You've got menu-driven systems, and it's it's easy, you know, it's easy to navigate in some respects. Yeah. Um, so you've got this kind of interesting dilemma between you know what's good for an instrument, but what's good for tweakability, you know, and sound. And, and what's funny is that I think um, they've been using the model of the old analog 
interface, but trying to make it fit with all of these parameters that are under pages and so on and so forth. And I've done the same thing with my creamware stuff, too. Yeah, I mean, you because you went through, you worked for a while with Korg. Um, did you? Right. You did WaveStation stuff. I did the WaveStation interface, which was a direct descendant from the Prophet 3000 interface that I did uh-huh. um, in terms of menus and soft keys and so on. And the WaveStation got pretty complex. And if you worked with one, I mean, I tried to make it as logical as possible, but again, well, it's a we new, had so it's a new kind of synthesis, really. I mean, wavetable synthesis is. It, it was kind of another, a whole new area. Yeah, and the wave, the wave sequencing thing was completely new, too. I mean, I had this idea from the Prophet VS where, uh, if you know what a VS does, it has a joystick and you have four corners and you yeah. can assign four, four different oscillators. And in, in my concept was to have the joystick move from A to B to C to D, isolating the others. And when you moved away from oscillator A so you couldn't hear it anymore, what I wanted to do is switch it to another wave shape so that by the time you came back, it was changed. And uh, unfortunately, the Prophet VS uh, oscillator chip would make a, a kind of a blip, sound of a kind of an interruption sound to the entire machine when you changed any of the four. Ah. So that didn't work, but that idea led eventually to the, the wave sequence uh, idea. But uh, I didn't really ever think of this rhythmic thing. It's funny because, it, again, I was just coming from a Prophet VS which is all crossfaded kind of stuff. Sure. And the first day, Scott Pearson, the engineer on it, uh, called me into the lab and said, here, I've got a wave sequence going. Let's check it out. And I sat down and it went, boom, king, you know, it went like that. I said, oh, my, I, I can't believe it. I didn't even think about it. This is going to be the big sound of this instrument. Well, and also, I mean, it's pretty much an all-digital instrument, isn't it? I mean, you know, because was that the first all-digital instrument that you worked upon, apart from, the, the I guess, the, the Prophet sampler, but something that was sort of more of a synthesis-based? The Prophet sampler still had analog, had Curtis filters there. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess so. I, uh, the, I'm, I don't recall about the, the filter there in Corey, except for it didn't have any resonance on that chip. That was the weirdest thing. We we come in from sequential background via Yamaha to Korg, and they told us that we had six or seven months to design a keyboard. For the new, we started with Korg in uh, May 88, and we had till January Namcho 89 to come up with a keyboard. So, And they said, here's the chips you need, and you're going to have to use this filter chip, and this is what we have. And there was no resonance on the filter chip, so that was a first for me. And I ended up using Sound Designer and... Uh, recording samples with resonance sweeps and then slicing, time slicing them up and fitting them into the ROM in series so we could do this wave sequence resonance sweep. <laughs> the amounts of memory you're thinking you had to play with back then were just kind of microscopic compared to what's available now. Well, of course. So then from there, I mean, you moved on into sort of creamware territory. I mean, that, cause, and that was pure sort of DSP stuff. After the WaveStation series spun itself out with the rack version, the SR um, I was done with that product line and started working on the core on the Oasis keyboard, the original one, and that was ninety into ninety two. So we did a couple of years, and we formally introduced the keyboard in ninety six at, at the trade shows. I, I remember doing the, the show at Mesa, introducing it. That had I did all the user user interface for that. That had a nice touch screen on it, and uh, we'd have like pop up sliders. You could change the volume for touching the screen and a little slider would pop up and then you drag your finger across and change the 
the slider and a couple, a couple of other things. But I was having to learn this uh, user interface program, which was kind of a nightmare. Uh, but then after that was shown, and, and the idea with that was this open architecture, of course, it could be anything, sample-based or D- DSP or whatever, PCM. Uh, but Yamaha, uh, but Korg decided to cancel the project in the summertime because uh, it was going to cost too much to sell it. Yeah, they felt that anything near ten thousand dollars would would not be viable product. So they canceled that, and we had to decide what we were going to do next. So we basically thought that we'd go into the PCI card business. And and it's kind of funny now that the eventually the Korg Oasis keyboard that did come out was still pretty expensive. Sure. I guess ten thousand dollars now uh, is not the same as ten thousand dollars then, though. So, but yeah, yeah well, it's eight, it's eight thousand now, but it's you know. In in any case, uh, I started work doing the user interface on the PCI card stuff, and that that being a DSP based machine, um, it was all going to live inside a computer. And then I saw something from the Frankfurt ninety eight Mesa, and that was a picture of this Mini Moog. Ah, uh, the Mini Max, yeah. From Creamware, and at that point, it was called a mini scope, I believe. Uh huh. Because it wasn't, it didn't have uh, really uh, good emulations. It was just using a basic set of oscillators and filters. Nothing was really researched at that point. But I didn't know that. I just saw the graphics, and the graphics I was having to deal with on the Cork PCI card on the Oasis was were minimal. And I, I thought, there's no way they're doing the graphics and the sound. I mean, at Korg, we were very proud of our sound algorithms, and I knew we had captured the Minimoog sound. But I also knew that people judge a lot by the eye, the eye candy factor, you know, yeah, how nice sure. it looks. So I, I saw that, and I, and I, to be honest, didn't have a good feeling that uh, Japan was going to keep the Korg R&D group together much longer. So I made this drastic change. I, I decided to leave Korg. Uh, I talked to some of the Creamware guys in Canada, they had an office, and one of them was an Accord guy, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd be open to looking into some other things, and he was quite surprised and then happy to know that I was available, and uh, they made an offer, and I thought, well, here's my chance to get into something brand new, and it was kind of a leap of faith that it was going to be good, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I ended up over in Germany with three weeks to design the uh, modular system for, for the Pulsar set up. <laughs> And uh, it was kind of, it was weird because I didn't know Windows, number one. I'd only been working on Macs for years and years. And they only used Windows. And not only that, but German Windows. So I had no idea where any menus were or what they meant or anything. It was a complete nightmare. Wow. To the credit of the scope program at the time, the uh, building program, SDK, uh, the development kit, um, I was able to get everything up and running and and ready for the... the, uh, little debut they had at the end of august and had a, a modular system up and running it was, it was pretty good that it, that it all worked the whole scope platform um you know that got an awful lot of uh, uh converts people still you know swear by it just the concept is great i just the uh, marketing was not good i guess and some de- some decisions about which products and so on never quite really caught on in a big way so you how long did you work with uh, creamware I worked there officially for one year, and then uh, it became apparent that uh, we had a difference of opinion on what to do. Uh, it just became apparent that the only way I was going to get anything done there is to leave. And uh, I had a number of projects unfinished 
in my mind, and I decided to just take a chance and sell, build them and sell them as third-party plugins for the Creamware platform. And so I started that like December of 99. I had four products, which I put together in the first six months of, of the year 2000. And I've been doing it ever since then, actually. So when you say put them together, I mean, does that mean you, did you find another DSP program or did you have to kind of get your hands in and actually code them? No, because the scope uh, system comes with a library of modules and basically you can drag and drop them and connect them. And uh, the modules are graphic representations of DSP code. So, so it's I like didn't component have to kind of stuff. A bit like Reactor, is that kind of, would that be a good Yeah, analogy? a bit like Reactor. Exactly, just better sounding. So you we kind of were able to... To, to, to program these things in a kind of higher language and, and devise the architecture and the interfaces yourself and just kind of compile them and put them out. Exactly. And um, it's been a, it's a great system. They have a good key protection scheme, and you can only use the synths if you have a board anyway, have a creamware board. So um, I, I had been approached later to do some VST things, but they told me that 9 out of 10 plugins were being pirated, and it just really rubbed me the wrong way as a designer. Obviously, you've got a much broader potential audience. You can affect a lot more people's lives and, you know, and also access to sort of open-ended DSP power because obviously, you know, right. as another computer comes out, you can just kind of go, well, hey, I can utilize that. Whereas I yeah. guess with a, a closed DSP system, there's a sort of finite amount of what you can do. Right. No, those are valid arguments for sure. Presumably, the DSPs in, uh, in the Creamware stuff have, have got plenty of headroom. Right. And, you know, really the, the question is, what kind of compromises are you willing to make for your sound quality and what's more important to you? And it, it seems to have gone the path of less quality and more mm, more something else, maybe more polyphony or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I really think that the people have, who have been using synthesizers since the hardware fell out of favor, let's say, have also come to accept either... Well, mostly because they just don't know anymore. Uh, you, you become accustomed to other other levels of quality of sound, and and so it's not a, it's not an issue anymore. Sure. I mean, very few people that, I, that I've talked to or have seen a Prophet Five firsthand. For example, it's it's twenty years or thirty years now. Yeah. So um, I understand that you know to to the, to the next generation. Um, the first Prophet 5 they saw was the Native Instruments version. So, Yeah. I guess the thing is also um, the way that synthesizers or most synthesizers are built these days, at least sort of mass production ones, are essentially just DSP boards with some knobs attached, you know, and the, and the right converters. So <laughs> if you can... Which is, which is the same thing the Solaris is. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. I mean, I was sort of leading in that respect in that way but the thing is about the solaris i mean if we move on to that because you made that in software first didn't you well as a plug yes, here's here's a great thing about the scope system it allows you to test things in real time you, you can plug modules together and you can immediately find out if that idea worked or not and then you can make a user interface surface because they, it's an entire graphics program in there as well as an audio program you can create whatever you want, put the knobs, put buttons, you know, do whatever crazy thing you want or logical thing you want. Try out the sound stuff and, and prove it to yourself. That, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So I started evolving the Orion, uh, the first synth I did. I started evolving that, and uh, then it became the Orion EX, you know, for extended. 
and I added more things and added more things, and then I got kind of bored and wanted to add more things. I mean, this is what happens with the synthesizer designers. Anybody at Korg or any of the large companies will tell you, or actually any any software company too, they call it uh, feature creep. Yeah. And you keep wanting to you keep wanting to add more and more things. Uh, my situation being my own employer, I could add. I didn't have to. I didn't have to hold back on the features. I could keep going, you know. So uh, anyway, I would do this, and I think I was done. And you know, six months later, you think a few more things would be nice. So what happened was that the uh, Oasis, oh, the Orion EX became this massive project, and I realized that at the end of all of these extensions, I wanted to do. I had a whole new synthesizer, so I changed the name to Solaris uh, after a, a Russian uh, science fiction movie that I really liked, and um, I brought that out. I think it was 2003, January. It was the first time, and I've had four revisions of it now, and it really what uh, what happened is that all that time and user feedback and other other ideas and so on, uh, I was able to refine the design and get it to a point that I really felt it was a strong candidate for a hardware representation. Which is sort of the ultimate ultimate revision. Yeah. I mean, it really represents, you know, the pinnacle of all of the work and all the, the thought I've, you know, everything that I've done so far into this one plugin. And I've had numerous requests, oh, boy, that would be great if you could make a hardware of that and so on and so forth. So I've, I had it in mind actually since I designed the thing because of the way the menus are set up in the software plugin uh, to eventually have some hardware representation of it. But still, when it came time to actually do it, it was a little bit of a challenge because I have a lot of pop-up menus in the software. And, you know, how do you do these kinds of things in hardware? So... Uh, it was an interesting challenge to convert the thing over to hardware again. So I've come full circle, though. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and presumably when you're designing, you know, adding more and more features, this is starting to eat DSP power. So, I mean, were there, were you, were you limiting your client base as well? Because, you know, people had to have add-on boards to get more than a single voice out of it. or you know, Yes, there's, there is the fact that I probably helped sell <laughs> many, more creamware boards. I think 80% of my customers have two or maybe even three boards in their systems to run my stuff because, yeah, you're right, it is more, more DSP-intensive. Um, there are some tricks you can have when you're designing these synthesizers wherein if you're not using a certain section, then it's not accounted for in the DSP right. uh, calculation. So I have that all over the place. And uh, the keyboard will have that as well. But um, you're right, it does limit the, uh, the user base. But so, so what you've done with this, I mean, I was reading that... Um you're going to increase you know, or optimize or, you know, add more DSP. I mean, you're still using, is it going to be Shark-based? Is that the? We are using Shark still. We're using the, the newest generation of Shark processor in there. I don't know what the number is offhand. I'm not an engineer, so I know that there's, they're high quality. They're running really fast. They do a lot of stuff. <laughs> and we got six of them in there. Okay. I mean, because I was wondering this also, I mean, um, it would is it is it ever likely to be possible that you know once you've because obviously your your um your feature creep might lead you to a position where you think well it'd be good if we could have some more DSP in these things I mean is that something that may be expandable in the in the frame of the hardware or would that have to be a whole new general? well it's funny you should mention that there is a hmm it just happens to be uh, 
potential connector on the board for an additional DSP board that would happen to fit in the case as well. Well, that <clears> makes <throat> plenty of sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's move on to the hardware side of things. Um, okay. I mean, did you find, uh, coming back to kind of working on hardware interfaces, I mean, did you have to relearn or were you kind of, because, I mean, it's been, it, it had been a little while since you'd been doing any hardware design. I mean, how, uh, right. how did you find that? Was it like coming back to an old friend or, you know, couldn't wait? Yeah, well, again, um, the, the thing about working in software is you can do whatever you want to do and you can get very clever with paging and, and do lots of parameters, but you can actually change the, the visual representation, of course, you know. Sure. One time you hit a button one time, there's eight knobs there. The next time there can be sliders, and you know you can graphically change everything. You get pretty spoiled with that. Um, so the challenge came to when I was going to bring it back into the hardware world. What in the heck was I going to do with those pages that changed to that extent graphically? And uh, I asked the hardware guy here, uh, Jurgen Kinderman, to find me the the longest display he could find that we could use. That would be uh, two by forty characters. It turned out, mm-hmm. and uh, in the plugin, here's an example. In the plugin, the oscillators and the LFOs uh, both have eight knobs across, or representation of eight knobs would be perfect. However, the two by forty character display really only comfortably fits five knobs. So, I, <laughs> I found myself trying to figure out, okay, that's my limitation. Now I have to fit everything within that constriction. Okay. So. Um, I took the original Solaris design and, and had to change it quite a bit and figure out how I'm going to do the pop-up menus and how I'm going to fit everything within this five-knob restriction everywhere. But I, I, I think I feel pretty comfortable with the way it, it ended up because none of the five sections that represent the basic core elements of a synthesizer design, the oscillators, filters, mixers, envelopes, and LFOs, your meat and potatoes sort of for synthesizer design, none of those sections go very deep. Everything... There's no subset sub menus or anything. They're all right there, and sure. just one one uh, page button per section, I think. Well, one or two. Of, but that was the point. And that still have this flexibility and usability, but to make it, you know, not so complex to get to. So, so I was I was happy to get back to hardware in that sense that, it, that you know, when you're using a mouse to control, you you only get one parameter at a time. Of course, there, there's a lot of controller keyboards and controller panels out there where you can assign MIDI knobs and do it that way. And I think you've seen quite a proliferation of those controller boards now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with that. I've been searching for the ideal one, and it's it's funny, but um, after, you know, because I've been testing the Lima and lots of MIDI controllers here at Sonic State, and um, yeah. I still come back to the one that I use, which is I just use, well, I use a Novation KS4 because it's got a basic synthesizer layout. And I assign right. the knobs that have got the labels to the the parameters of the plugin because it kind of makes sense. I reach for the cutoff, and it's the cutoff. I reach for the, you know, do you see what I mean? So you're actually, right, right, right. we're all kind of fairly conservative when it comes down to it. So it's kind of <laughs> quite hard to uh, break out of that. And also another thing in my design, this may seem odd to you, but I've often thought about the fact of a blind person playing and you know the the ability to reach to that upper the knob second from the right or the third knob on the left or whatever, and you know what that's going to be. Um, and it should be possible for a blind person to, to work your your, design, your front panel. Right, I see what you're saying. I, I kind of had that in mind all along. I, I used to think about that. And So uh, I, I hit, you've got two prototypes, right? 
and they were both there. They're they're exactly the same. It was just a color difference. Yeah, oh, an anthracite or olive. Which one's your favorite? Are you have you got a personal choice? <laughs> um, I I do only because I can see the printing better on the olive one on the lighter one. Right. For for my older set of eyes, but uh, <laughs> we had I would say five to one in favor of the darker one. What was the response at the show? Can you talk to me a little bit about the architecture of uh, of Solaris? I mean, is is it fixed or are you kind of completely open and reconfigurable? Um, it's voice architecture. It's only fixed in really one area, one or two areas. And the fixed areas are there's a mixer which is tied to a filter. Um, and then the other area is that there's an envelope tied to the VCA, you know, the amplitude envelope. Right. So those are the only, those are the only really fixed things. Um, the structure currently is four oscillators, um, four mixers, four filters, five LFOs, one of them being a vibrato LFO, so that's always tied. Oh, okay, so that's always tied to frequency. Uh-huh. There's another permanent one. And then uh, six envelopes, which are ADSR type, and then an additional two envelopes, which are eight segment looping envelopes. Um, wow. So eight envelopes total. Um and that's your basic, that's your basic structure. Um, so, from there, however, you can pretty much decide any number of things in terms of modulation. Um, there's a modulation source list uh, that can that appears everywhere, and uh, you can derive a, a lot of things: the frequency, the pulse width, the shape, uh, the mixers, inputs, the frequency of the cutoff. I mean, the cutoff of the filter. Uh, all of these run from the same modulation list. Uh, one of the differences in my approach that I, uh, I've been noticing is that I, I like a destination-based modulation routing, uh, which means there's always in this in our philosophy of, of sound design from years back, we would always talk about source-based or destination-based. And a lot of these synths where you, you go to the LFO and then you decide where that LFO ends up, yeah. From like a ma- from from like a matrix setup, that's source based where you start and you send it somewhere. And but Solaris is basically destination based. You're at the oscillator and you check, you pick who who's going to come in and influence the oscillator's frequency. For example, you were saying um, the, the the whole kind of quality of. Do you think there's an advantage to DSP sides of stuff? I mean, you know, you were saying about the sounds. I mean, you you concentrate sort of. Uh, enormous amount of effort on kind of getting the basic waves to sound sort of fantastic before they yeah. become subtracted i mean how well my i know that my reputation based on is based on two things the sound that um, one for sound quality and the other one for use of uh, ease of use so these two things were paramount uh, when i went looking for a software engineer to to generate the code for me since we couldn't use any of the creamware code because of, uh, at the at that point we were not uh, didn't have any access to it legally. Yeah. Um, so I, I set about looking, and this actually took me the, the bulk of the last two years was to find somebody that I felt would do a good job and was in, interested. And uh, I ended up finding a, a young uh, programmer from the University of Helsinki. Uh, his name is Antti. Um, I can't. It's hard to pronounce the last name, but. Generally, you don't, you know, companies don't tell about their DSP guys because they want to keep them secret sure. from the competition. But 
Anyway, Auntie had already published some VSTs out there for free. And so someone mentioned his name in the Creamware forum called Planet Z. Z. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just rung him up basically email wise and discussed with what his background was. And his, his master's program is on uh, nonlinear component des- algorithm design. So he's very, very keen on capturing the, the nuances of all the resistors and capacitors and so on of the old, old analog circuits. And I thought, well, that sounds perfect for me. And uh, a few more emails later, and I, I found uh, basically someone that fit all the qualifications and, and, and responded in the correct ways and seemed to have the same, you know, philosophy about sound quality and, and aim. So I brought him to Frankfurt a year ago and had him uh, look around and uh, meet the other two members of the team, Holger Drenkelfort and Jürgen Kinderman. And uh, we made tentative arrangements, but we didn't really get started on the whole project until October. Wow. So, I mean, in some ways, it was just sort of pure coincidence that you found this guy and he was the last piece of the jigsaw. Absolutely. And that's exactly how I felt about it at the time. Where are its are Solaris' sonic strong points? I mean, what, you know, if you're, is there a kind of flavor to it or how would you describe it from a sort of char- uh, personality sort of characteristics point mm. of view? That's a good question because I've been asked that, of course, quite a bit recently. Um, the thing about Solaris, it, 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 may, it may or may not have its own character because it contains the components of all these different synths that I've developed over the years that, that have not just me, but in general. And, in fact, it's kind of interesting now. I'm starting to see quite a bit of the uh, capability show up in other synths and other plugins so that you have standard oscillator shapes, you have wavetable shapes, you have sample playback shapes, you have um, FM, you mean, you have all of these things coming in and this is what the Solaris plugin's been doing for the last four years already and now it's starting to show up in Reason, I think one of their synths and oh, a whole number of synths I've seen all of this kind of yeah. come together. Um, so whether it has a distinct identity of sound, I guess it remains to be seen. We only had one oscillator type and one filter type working at the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to say that Auntie's uh, uh, algorithms are very clean and, and nice and bright. I mean, we're running at 96 kilohertz, um, so everything is a, a bit above the old creamware stuff. And uh, the people that had heard it pretty much... To the man, we're, we're pleasantly surprised with the sound. But, you know, and the same thing with the filters. We're going to have a variety of filters represented in there, as I did in the Creamware version. I mean, sure. there's a mini-mug or a ladder filter emulation with not just low-pass, but all sorts of, all the pole variations you can have. And the Curtis filter emulation of the Rev 3 Prophet and the solid-state music emulation of the Rev 1 Prophet and the Overheim solid-state uh, variable you know, we have a library of things we're building up, and uh, same with the oscillators. And the, and the key other thing about this, if I might add, try to get all of this in, is that these algorithms can be added to at any time in the future. So as additional filter types or oscillator types are developed, I can uh, we can insert these in the operating system and just have them available in the... Uh, Select and selection list. Right, I see. And how's, is it USB or, you know, how's, how's the connectivity co- kind of for updating the, 
the OS? I mean, how does that work? There is a USB port. Uh, there may actually be two now. I'm not quite sure what we've decided on, but yeah, you can do uh, OS updates over USB. And you and you use the USB to load uh, your user samples and user wavetables as well. Right. Well, it sounds like you're going to have a bit of a hit because, uh, I mean, from what I understand, you know, just looking at the synth community, you know, people have kind of going kind of crazy for it. Um, so, you know, I'm guessing perhaps the next eight months are going to be pretty busy or longer. I mean, when when are we going to see it come to fruition? And you know, do oh. we have an ETA for it yet? Uh, October. Okay. Oh, it's about my birthday time. I hope you're thinking oh. of me just then. <laughs> You'll have to ring me up for a, a birthday present, eh? That'll be great. I mean, also, I mean, you know, you're, there's there's uh, some, some interesting quotes from people like Hans Zimmer and, you know, people like that who kind of obviously respect your work of the past. I mean, I'm guessing, you know, they're, they're putting their names down um, and they're just going to buy stuff that you make. So you must have, like... A guaranteed, or at least as much as anyone can be. You know, you know, you're going to be able to sell a certain number. So, and like you're saying, you're putting a lot of your own resources into this, and it's uh, it must be um, a nerve-wracking, but um, but ultimately quite <laughs> exhilarating. I would think you could say that. It, that's precisely yes. That's a good way to put it because uh, it, it you take a risk here. No no question about it. And um, the thing is, if you don't take risks, then you don't ever have a chance to gain. You know, to to win the game, you don't you don't try it. So, are there are there plans? I know it's early days. This one still hasn't hit the shops yet. Are there are there plans to kind of if this works well? You got kind of other little uh, ideas that you want to realize in hardware also? Oh, of course. I mean, there were actually there were several other creamer plugins that I built that I think would also be a nice addition to the hardware world again. But we'll yeah, you're right. We'll see how this one goes. First. But um. And I, I also read recently that um, you've got access to some of those Creamware DSP algorithms now, so you can... Right, well, in the midst of all of this, uh, Creamware went through a second, uh, uh, what do they call it, insolvency. Right. And one of the things we had talked about all this time was, boy, we wish we could have access to some of those algorithms, because the Minimax and the uh, Pro, I guess it's called the Pro 12 now, the, the hardware ASBs yep. boxes that have been out, uh, certainly, those algorithms are well defined and sound great, and would speed up my, our progress because my engineer wouldn't have to duplicate that that work. Sure. And uh, what happened was uh, they went into negotiations to buy the property in uh, when did that start? In February, and as of March first, uh, my partners had formed a new company called Sonic Core that has the rights to the uh, DSP library, as well as actually they've taken on the entire uh, support production and sales of all the Creamware products. So it the main thing that did was cause a, about a month of delay on the keyboard, unfortunately. But, yeah, in the long run, we hope it'll, it'll be worth it. That we'll have access to all of the, the Creamware, uh, you know, the, all the good stuff that's in there. I mean, you're, you're running at 96K. I mean, are you using custom hardware for the uh, DHD D2As? Because just choosing that element must be kind of quite a, quite a series of listening tests. I'll, I'll have through. to say that I'm, I'm unaware of the hardware side of things, what, what parts are running, what's in there. You'd have to talk to Jurgen about all of that stuff. Okay. I, I just told him that sound quality is very, very important, you know. On the other hand, running at 192, we, we were investigating running at 192, and um, it's just really 
intensive. Yeah, well, there's a factor of change is enormous. The synth synth is already using a lot of stuff because I'm doing all this audio rate modulation uh, sample-based, you know, uh, Mm. calculations, so that uses quite a bit. I'm hoping 96 will be sufficient. So you're back uh, back to uh, the States tomorrow, been in Germany right. the whole time. Uh, and what's what's the first thing you got to do, kind of related to Solaris when you land? Uh, well, we have a number. The, the the two instruments that were shown are prototypes. I won't have anything back in the states to work with, uh, but I'm going to set about. You know, the way I did the initial layout was again with the scope S, uh, development kit, and then graphically. Uh, was able to you know move things around and, and decide. So there are some changes that we're going to make to the uh, front panel. And I have a few other questions in mind about some functions that I was thinking about as as I watched people use it. So probably what I'll do, the first thing is uh, open up my uh, scope development system and uh, start playing with, you know, moving those things around and trying out some ideas that way. So does and, everybody, uh, everybody who has to implement your changes sit there with bated breath thinking, not too many, please, not too many, please? No, no. I mean, these are, it's, it's more of a, it's more subtle than that. Actually, right. But. Okay. Well, so you, you say we're going to see this in October time, roughly. Um, have you got any idea of pricings? Uh, I'd, I'd like to say that I did have a fine price, firm price. I don't have, I don't even know what's going to cost me to build yet. <laughs> That's a tricky. That's a tricky question to answer. Then I think it'll be on the high end, around three thousand euros, something like this. You're going to get back. You're going to get the whole thing made out uh, and, and made and ready, ready to roll. And um, well, if you're going to be talking October, um, when are we going to see it? Will the next? Will it be the next NAM that will have its its sort of butterfly-like debut from the chrysalis of development? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean. Uh, tentatively, I'm going to sell the first batch, which is a, we, the first lot we make is 100. Uh, I won't really have any legitimate sound examples, I think, until we get the full thing working and voice, voicing is done in August. So Sure. It's, uh, I won't even have a machine back in the States, as I said. So, so are you going to be um, designing some, presumably, you know, a bunch of patches that you've already done for Solaris will be work, be able to work with this hardware synth? Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, there's about 500. There's about 500 presets on there already. And the thing will be to see how close it comes to the cream. You know, it's actually the creamer stuff sounds pretty decent, but I, this is going to sound better. It has to. Well, John, I'm. I wish you the best of luck, and by you know, the signs are all kind of really positive so i don't think you're going to have too much trouble with it Um, thank you and thank you very much for talking to us today thank you very much well once again thank you very much to uh, john bowen there um for giving up so much of his valuable time just before he flies back to america and carries on production of the uh, much anticipated solaris synth uh, we will be resuming normal service next week uh with uh, episode 41 of sonic talk uh thanks for listening Sonic State. Not home.